This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Fall 2017, Episode 6, or something like that. Today's video is about the sixth episode of Land of the Lustrous. If you are going through the Land of the Lustrous analyses for the first time, you should know there has been a considerable gap between the episode 5 video and this one. It's a long story that we won't recap here, but just know that I've created about 70 new videos in the meantime. During that process, I changed a lot of the way I do things, and many of those changes will be present in this video and the ones to follow. Hopefully it will be better and not just different. The short look structure, at least, will remain the same. Despite the time gap, I have managed to remain spoiler-free on this series. I have done this by continuing my anime community blackout, which has probably had some negative impacts on my channel, but keeping my experience of the series pure for the sake of these analyses is really important to me. I'll therefore probably still be absent from the comment section for these videos so that no one has to fear ruining things for me. Um, I've really been looking forward to returning to this series. Uh, Land of the Lustrous is pretty close to a perfect specimen for the kind of shows I want to analyze. It is speculative fiction, it takes advantage of its medium to tell the story, it features prominent visual metaphor, it has economy of scene, there is some ontological mystery, and most importantly, it is character-driven and features at least some complex characterizations. It should be no surprise, then, how much the character of Fos impacts how I enjoy and analyze this series. I'm admittedly only halfway through this season, but right now I think Fos is well on her way to becoming one of my all-time favorite anime protagonists. I definitely have a soft spot for complicated, changeable heroines who find the will to be proactive about their situations. I like to see characters end up in a different place than they began, while not being purely reactive. Fos already belongs on that list, right alongside some of my other favorite heroines like Tsunamore Akane, Chisei, Shirayuki, Taiga, uh, Hanabi, just about all of the Monogatari girls, um, Akami Homura for sure. Probably end up adding Sakuraja Mamai and Emma to that list. I'm forgetting some older ones, I think. Uh, the point is, she's right up my alley like the show is right up my alley. Now, I don't watch the next episode in a series until I'm ready to start writing about it. Um, I want the novelty of the experience fresh in my mind. That means I have languished all this time without having seen past the fifth episode. With that time to reflect, I've realized two things. One is how excellent that previous episode really was, and the other is how Land of the Lustrous is an interesting case study in how important character perspective is to the audience experience. Fos is our main point of view, and it is only because of this that I have this positive outlook toward her. That is, if we were watching these events from some other character's perspective, our experience would be dramatically different. 
Imagine we had watched the events so far as Jade, or as Rutil, or even as Bort. We would only know Fos as this constant troublemaker, someone who just generates plot activities with her idiocy, and we groan at watching our main character try to meet each new disaster. She would probably feel like a burden or distraction to us, and that is probably how she comes across to many of the others, especially considering how they all reacted when they thought she was a snail. Instead, we get to hear Fos's dialogues with herself, and her private moments with Cinnabar, and Rutil, and Ventricosis. We get to see how dramatically she shifts in purpose when she meets someone she thinks is less fortunate than herself, see how earnestly she wants to help, and how resigned she is when she is tricked by Ventricosis, but then how her genuine honesty wins Ventricosis over, how much she shifts between excitement and despair, between being supportive or being snarky. All these little permutations and fos make up the bulk of what the audience experiences, and we wouldn't have but a fraction of it if our main point of view was someone else. Even the episode where she is absent almost entirely, a lot of the focus is on how people react to her, and how her character struggle may not be so singular. This does more than just give us an interesting character as our focus. Um, that is certainly important for a story, but what is also important is drawing the audience in to the world the storyteller has built out. We are watching a tiny island kingdom of immortal, sapient gemstones who live off of sunlight and are hunted by strange white shadows from the moon. They have no gender, no sexuality, no parents or siblings or children, and may very well have no system of government or law or even a concept of ownership. And the youngest among them is three centuries old. None of that is relatable to the audience, who is made up entirely of humans, I assume. Despite a lot of superficial similarities, the titular land of these lustrous beings is almost completely alien to our own experience. But we have Fos. She is often impertinent or impulsive or deceitful, but can also be warm and excitable and is almost always earnest. She is quick to champion the cause of another, but just as quick to second-guess her own ability to deliver. She wants a place of prestige and she wants to contribute, but she also wants to be lazy and wants to skip out on the things that she doesn't want to do. She is just so… human. And because of this, we hardly notice how otherwise strange and unknowable the gem society is. From another viewpoint, we may have long ago lost interest or felt disconnected from the characters and their struggles, but we have Fos. I'll have more to say about her in characterization, though, so let's get this show on the road. Today's video includes the intro you just heard, then sections on goals, conflicts, characterization, world building, and theme, followed by what to watch for and speculation. So to start with goals. This episode seems to set up what is usually a great moment for a character, the point where multiple goals converge together. Early in the series, we learned these two things that Fos wanted, to join the fight against the Lunarians and to get a new job, something other than the Encyclopedia. Kongo removed her from the Encyclopedia last episode, and we guessed that this might portend that she would be free to take on some new task. There's no mystery about what Fos would suggest. At the earliest opportunity, she campaigns that she should be allowed to join the fight. Thus, we have a scene where Fos has a chance to grasp her long-time goal. The odd way her body reacted to the stronger leg material has given her incredible speed, 
and once she gains control, it may make her physically superlative in at least one way. Kongo wouldn't want to waste this new power, right? She is answered at first not by Kongo, but by Rutil and Yellow Diamond, who are also present. Rutil argues that you can't win at battle by running away, while Yellow argues that you need a partner to battle, and Fos is, well, problematic for any such partner. The back and forth between the three is a great little bit. It's humorous, and it builds out their characters a little more, especially the less familiar Yellow. And at the same time, it communicates more of the world-building rules around the way they fight. Kongo says nothing to all of this, contemplating the request in his own way, before interrupting them to call to another new gem, Obsidian, who I guess has been sitting just out of sight weapon crafting all this time? Anyway, rather than agree with Fos or with her detractors, Kongo calls for the lightest possible weapon, which Rutil can hardly believe. Kongo holds it forth with some ceremony, and the scene slows to allow Fos time to take the moment in. She reaches tentatively for the handle, and there is some gravitas to her slow wonder, like a few seconds of stillness before pulling forth Excalibur or something. She is delighted when she first takes hold, and then Kongo lets go. Only Fos is surprised at the result. It seems the best argument is the self-demonstrating kind. But being able to wield the sword would fulfill a long goal of hers. She isn't going to be swayed so easily, and so struggles to insist that she can manage. She says she'll practice every day, and she lifts the sword above her head with some difficulty. Now, in the past, the only clues we had to why Fos was driven to want to fight came from some of her comments, that she thought it was a cooler job, that she thought it was important, and her reaction to being called a sensei back in episode one further suggested that she was motivated by a desire for status. She saw fighting as the most visible and important work, and so wanted to be part of it. This all seems believable, and jives with the misplaced priorities she has uh, due to her youth, but Kongo finally just asks outright why she wants to fight so much. To him, it's self-evident that she is ill-suited, but to her, instead, it's self-evident why she would want to. She loves Kongo. She wants to fight for him. Now it's everyone else's turn to be surprised, which surprises Fos in turn. Is there even any other reason, she asks? I get the sense that this is just one of those things you don't articulate, and Fos just isn't the best at reading the room. Come to think of it, Daya is the only one I can remember expressing anything like affection, and Cinnabar seems to rebuke her tendency to think of everything as a romance. Bort's single smile in the whole series came after praise from Congo, and it seemed involuntary or secretive. Perhaps our little society is like human cultures in which talking about feelings is a deeply private matter. And while Fos isn't wrong about everyone's rationale, she is committing a faux pas by speaking it aloud. Truth from the mouth of babes. Now, Yellow will come to her rescue a bit here, but the important thing for us in this section is getting a further glimpse into what motivates Fos. That's what Goals is all about. I'm not sure if Kongo is influenced by this surprising honesty or not, but while she is not suited for battle, he suggests that Fos can join Amethyst on her lookout. The hopeful delight that was extinguished by the weight of the sword now returns. There's no doubt that contributing in some way to the fight holds a lot of meaning for Fos. In fact, that very night, she lies in bed holding fast to her new sword, like a child sleepless on Christmas Eve. 
at last her chance on the battlefield. But the incident with the weight of the sword was not just a moment of levity. Rather, that humor covers up a tiny bit of foreshadowing. Fos is not suited for battle, and taking up the sword will not go the way she expects. The responsibility of joining the fight will prove heavy indeed. Too heavy. Had the episode ended here, we might have counted this goal as achieved. Instead, the second half of the episode concerns how realizing this goal will actually play out. At first, Fos is all nerves. She's tense during their first morning meeting, and she has already unsheathed her sword in anticipation when they arrive at their patrol location. From her difficulty the previous day, we know this must be physically draining, and she will then make herself mentally drained by jumping at every little thing that draws the Amethyst twin's attention. I felt tired just watching her, imagining carrying on like that for an entire day. She's visibly sagging by the end of day one, and appears to have been dragged back bodily by Amethyst. Rutil will also hear her describe her ordeal as extreme nervousness, and that she is mentally exhausted, and in need of long-term rest and recovery. The following day is much of the same, and Rutil glances in to note how worn out Fos is yet again. By the third day, she cannot keep up with the tension. In typical Fos manner, though, she covers her shortcoming by masquerading as the opposite. She is more relaxed, and that means she can afford to pursue the thing she really wanted all along, to indulge in the part of the fighting job that she thinks is cool. Though Amethyst asks if Fos wants to try some sword practice, the first thing she wants to master is drawing her sword and tossing the sheath behind her, and the twins seem to oblige her. But just as with the unexpected unsheathing from Daya in Episode 2, Amethyst does not draw blades idly. Fos is treated to another ringside seat of a fight with the Lunarians, which is spectacularly flashy and impressive. I am sure that this fits Fos' notion of cool to a T. Had it ended there, maybe Fos would feel that all the anxious waiting around was worthwhile. Instead, Fos gets to witness another fight that goes the wrong way. The body horror of being broken apart is especially pronounced this time, not only for how complete it is and how distressed the Amethyst twins seem to be, but because the configuration of this particular weapon has such a biological and mouth-like appearance. It's less like being struck apart by swords or arrows, and much more like being eaten alive. It's horrifying enough that Fos is paralyzed with inaction. For the first time, she is in a fight with a sword of her own, and she can't make a move. She has these incredibly fast legs now, and she should be going for help, and is even urged to flee by Amethyst. Yet she sits, stock still. Now, I've run through all that in a longer way than I do for goals most of the time, um, but it's because I suspect that the main point of this episode is to have Fos experience the reality of this thing she so desires. Her expectations of what her job would be and how it panned out were night and day. The tedium, exhaustion, and uncool parts of keeping watch wear her down in a way that she never suspected. But then, when actual fighting occurs, it's unexpectedly horrible. She watches the capable twins perform all the flashy, cool moves that she wants to be part of, and yet they still lose, broken apart to their own cries of distress. It's hard to say if her previous near-miss at being captured has caused her trauma, and whether that might be related to how she freezes in this moment, but even if not, it's like fighting ends up being the opposite of what she thought in every possible way. 
Now, Fosa has demonstrated that she is very stubborn and can be unrelenting in pursuit of what she wants. A setback like losing a fight herself probably wouldn't derail her. But the key part of that observation is that Fosa is unrelenting so long as it's something she wants. After her experience today, are we sure she will still want to be part of the fight? The episode ends before we have any sense of what comes next, but it's entirely possible that we just watched a character achieve a goal and discard that goal in the same episode. I don't know what Kongo will decide, we'll talk about that next, but even if Fos persists in this role she coveted for so long, do we really expect her to be as driven by it as she was before? What kind of disillusionment will she feel after wanting this for likely hundreds of years to have it turn out thus? Considering how she wants to do it because she loves Congo and feels it is a demonstration of that love, how inadequate will she now feel instead? When the shock wears off, will we have a return to that defeated Fos that washed up on shore? This is speculative, of course, but I think the shine is off. Even though joining the fight is something Fos does from a feeling of love or duty on one level, her impression of it has always been a bit self-serving. She thinks it's important, she thinks it looks cool, and she wants that status for herself. Those are the desires of the petulant and bratty Fos that begins the series, but we've kept up with how she changes when she takes up a goal that focuses on someone else. When she is driven by a desire to help Cinnabar, she becomes a different person. A better person. Even in this episode, when she is at maximum anticipation for her new job, she still grounds herself by thinking about how she may be getting close to a solution for Cinnabar, who it seems she is imagining out on her night patrol even as Fos drifts off to sleep. Thus, I think that if Fos can get over the shattered impression of what fighting means to her and can embrace it as a task she does for the sake of others, then she might be able to make peace with being in the fight and being dedicated to it. If she can't though, if too much of what drove her towards this was inward focused, then I think she will think of fighting in a not too dissimilar way to how she initially felt about the encyclopedia task. Now, whether she has this crisis or not depends on what Congo decides to do, so let's next talk about he has two goals in play as well. There are desires we can discern pretty easily. He wants to protect everyone, and he also wants to find everyone a job, which is really him trying to find everyone a purpose. Part of why we guessed that Fos might be able to join the fight was Congo taking away the encyclopedia job. The gems are mostly single-minded enough that having a role in society is enough to keep them happy and focused. Fos has given him a lot of trouble on this front, but giving her a way to contribute to the fight appears like it will meet both of their desires at the same time. But it did not go according to plan. Now, Congo's other goal of protecting everyone comes into conflict with the hope of finding Fos a job. It already did so with the encyclopedia task, as Fos endangered everyone by going into the sea, something she was only free to do because of the flexibility of the task. Taking her off that job was probably just as much about preventing potential disaster to the others. Now that Fos has perhaps shown she is ill-suited even to lookout work, will he keep putting her out there, where her unpredictable behavior may put another gem at risk? I confess that it's hard to tell if Amethyst's fight with Lunarians was a departure from the normal script. Like, I got the impression that he was okay putting her with them because they serve as lookouts rather than fighters. 
It seemed she would see little or no fighting in that role, and that instead, perhaps she was supposed to use her speed to find a more combat-capable pair and sound the alarm. Did the Amethyst twins only go immediately into battle because of Phos being there? Would they have fared the same without her present? Bort is quite upset with Phos right at the end, but is that because she caused this fight to happen? Or just because she is sitting there and doing nothing while Amethyst is torn apart? Now, even if that fight would have happened with or without Phos, the way she freezes in battle is not going to inspire much confidence in keeping her in the role. I don't think Amethyst would hold it against her based on how things happened, but there was already some trepidation about putting Phos out here, and this could easily be enough to call it off. The episode took care to show Rutil noticing how out of depth Phos seemed each night, which might become relevant to this decision. However, if Congo decides thus, he'll be right back to having a gym with no job, which is how we started the whole series. We should get a real sense of Kongo's priorities depending on how he handles the fallout from this. Finally, just to mention the Lunarians and their goal of capturing the gems, they have again demonstrated new tactics in this pursuit. This is the third time this series that they have tried something the gems hadn't seen before, so there can be no questioning their dedication to this goal. In fact, I think it means a further escalation of conflict so let's switch to that section and talk about it. In Conflicts, the background crisis of Lunarians kidnapping gems has shifted once more. It would seem that one of their advantages, aside from pure numbers, is that they can surprise the gems. They have used arrows made from Heliodor, they introduced Ventricosis to the island to lure gems away, and now they have this Venus flytrap thing that is armed with pieces of a different gem that was captured, Probably Sapphire, now that we know she was a past victim. We'll get to that later. The gems have shown themselves to be physically superior to the Lunarians in battle, with one or two gems routinely tearing through dozens. Yet when they introduce something novel, the gems have trouble adapting, despite their martial superiority. Euclase and Rutil had a discussion before about how they don't even seem alarmed when their enemy introduces new tactics and the conversation where that observation is made is all about how unchanging and disconnected they are from the world, perhaps because of being immortals. This already suggested that the gems would have trouble with changing tactics, but the way it's a topic of conversation, as though it's a new development, suggests to me that we have an acceleration in this conflict. That is, these constant new approaches are probably going to affect the story in a more substantial way soon enough. I mentioned last time that I wondered if suspending the low-stakes encyclopedia task might suggest that the series itself will cease having low-stakes outcomes to each new crisis. An escalation in Lunarian inventiveness or aggression would sync up with that nicely. So I expect this conflict to begin diverging the story more than it has to this point. So I added a conflict of the gems being exhausted because of searching for Phos. I thought this could potentially cause a new crisis since we ended with the bell ringing last time, implying they were about to go into battle despite being up all night. It may be that this contributed to Zircon making the error in judgment that got her head lopped off. It's hard to tell if she behaves that way normally or not. Otherwise though, there is no consequence to what Phos put them through that we are aware of. 
How it is used instead is as a way of compressing time. Rutile was exhausted from restoring Fos and her new legs, and we saw her trying to catch some sleep despite the ruckus last episode. Thus, after the brief fight to introduce us to Yellow Diamond, it skips ahead to Rutile waking up from this nap. This didn't end up really being a conflict, but rather a way to set up the conversation between Yellow and Rutile, which then sets up Yellow and Fos to interact. It made it believable that Rutile wouldn't notice Fos's disappearance right away. I'm impressed by this use, even if it turned out to be no conflict at all, so we will take this off. We also continued the Fos may be changed conflict. This started originally with her merger into Ventricosis, which seemed to grant her an understanding of the Admirabilis speech. We thought there may potentially be some other changes that we didn't know about yet. Um, and now she has even more change due to the legs. And initially it seemed like that would be its own new disaster. She can't control them at first. And even after Yellow snags her, the difference between her legs and the rest of her suggests that Fos could easily destroy herself without good control. While this may affect the course of the story in the future, inside this episode it serves as a bit of a red herring. A lot of time was spent focusing on how the upgraded speed did not make Fos a capable warrior. She can't lift the sword initially, she of course has no experience using it, and just being set down on a hard enough surface was enough to send cracks through her body. We in the audience are being prepared to believe that Fos is headed toward more personal disaster, and this new way she has physically changed is part of that preparation. When it is the highly capable Amethyst twins instead of Fos, it is a bit surprising. However, we'll keep the uncertainty of this in mind, as it may serve more purpose in the future than just allowing the end of this episode to surprise us. Once we fully understand what Fos's physical changes suggest, we'll be able to take this down, as it won't be an unpredictable X-Factor anymore. Um, it has some overlap with another conflict from way back, which is that Fos wants to fight but is too fragile. Her legs at least no longer have this problem, but if anything, the disconnect between the two parts of her body mean that this may be an even greater risk than it was originally. Um, we still don't know it all though, so we will keep watch on this. So in characterization, I want to point out that the show has increased the size of the cast in a gradual but very deliberate manner. When crafting a story, you can't give a thorough introduction to every character at the beginning, and even if you did, the audience will forget half of them anyway. We not only don't know any of the characters to begin with, of course, uh, but we also don't know how the world works, or the premise, or the setting, and that leaves aside adjusting to things like tone and aesthetic. We are overwhelmed, and can only meet a small handful of characters in this bewilderment stage. Other characters can be shown on screen for a moment, or just given a name, or a few lines at this point, uh, and it works fine because it lets us know we might learn more about them later. We don't need to complete our picture right now. A narrative often must slow down in order to characterize, and so a story might stumble out of the gate if we meet too many people too quickly. Land of the Lustrous has rounded out its cast in two ways, either by putting a lot of focus on a new character or two in a single episode, or by letting us slowly build a picture of frequent characters with a scene or two during most episodes. Congo, Rutile, Jade, and Euclase have mostly been filled in by having smaller scenes at regular intervals 
instead of being in particular focus during any one episode. These characters are frequently involved in most of the events, and so this is a pretty logical way to round them out for us. Other characters get a lot of focus when they first show up, and the show seems to prefer doing this in pairs. Fos and Cinnabar get the lion's share of characterization in the premiere, with important moments to introduce Congo and Rutil as well. The second episode then focuses on Daya and Bort. The fourth episode mostly introduces Ventricosis, with the fifth focusing on her true self and introducing her brother, Akleatis, to round out that pair. In this episode, we meet Yellow Diamond and the Amethyst Twins, who are essentially one character. Neither of these gems had ever been named or given more than cursory screen time, and yet it wasn't out of place to have them introduced like this because the show has employed a similar pattern all along. So let's start with Yellow Diamond, or just Yellow. Our first introduction to her is in combat, where she is not attacking the Lunarians, but running, ducking, and dodging their arrows. Her previously unused yellow color leaves streaks behind her when she moves, emphasizing to us that she is particularly speedy. This episode began by replaying the clip of Fos being able to run at an incredible clip, and so having that lead directly into introducing a gem who seems to fight using her speed sets us up to compare the two. Yellow becomes an example for Fos to meet or exceed with her new legs. Aside from this physical characteristic, we can first gather that Yellow is pretty self-assured, as she dodges the attacks with calm precision, even having time to make wisecracks between volleys and muse on her inner observations. The only surprise is when Zircon interposes herself between Yellow and the Hail of Arrows, which gave us this great jump cut with a bit of body horror. The conversation this prompts between her and Rutil is where we get a better sense of her, and it contrasts sharply with the battlefield confidence we just witnessed. Rutil suggests Zircon took the unnecessary step of shielding Yellow because Yellow is held in such high regard, but this gives her pause. She counters that, thanks to her, all of her past partners have been taken to the moon. She is a failure, or at least she seems to feel that way. She says nothing about her merits any respect like that. She is the oldest, it seems, almost 3,600 years old, and that may be why she thinks she gets such treatment, a general respect toward elders rather than respect she has earned. And indeed, she says she's only the oldest because she is quick to run from danger. The way she talks about causing the loss of her former partners, and yet apparently has never changed what she does, reminds me a lot of that conversation between Euclides and Rutile that I already mentioned, when they talked about hardly fearing a thing even when their enemy begins changing their ways, and then wondering if it may be due to their immortal status. This is something I've talked about before, that both the immortality of the gems and their portrayal as being rigid beings means that they don't change or adapt in the same way as living things. Here is Yellow expressing a sense of failure at having the way she carries on contribute to losing four partners, and yet she continues. That said, this kind of self-reflection informs our understanding of her as well. Only a few of the gems have come off as introspective and clever. Rutil and Cinnabar were for sure, and Fos is at least introspective. Part of what makes the premiere episode so good is how much of it consists of conversations between those three. Beyond them, Euclace was eventually shown to have depth during that conversation we mentioned earlier. 
I think our new character Yellow is being portrayed in a similar light. Before now, I had actually wondered if there was going to be some kind of link between the Mohs scale hardness values of the gems and their personalities or tendencies. The gems have trouble with change, and this is echoed in their unchanging physicality. But our two softest members, Phos and Cinnabar, are both characterized as people capable of change, complicated personalities full of conflicting emotions and desires. The two diamonds we had met at the other end of the scale, Daya and Bort, were opposites to one another, but very consistent in their personality. Daya has an internal crisis, and I have supposed that Bort has her own, but change in who they are seems like it will be slow, if at all possible. Now we have a third diamond, and though she may be more introspective, perhaps she is just as unchangeable. Are the hardest members therefore the least adaptable, but therefore the most consistent? I'm not sure, but I'll keep watching for it. I will point out that Yellow also wears the very long stockings and gloves like Daya and Bort, but while Daya wears white and Bort wears black, opposites in color and temperament, Yellow wears a set of gray. She is between them in color and seems to be less extreme in her personality as well. Though it probably doesn't need to be mentioned, she is also like the other diamonds in, well, being a diamond, with a Mohs scale hardness of 10. The yellow coloration stems from a slight impurity of nitrogen, but is otherwise just like the Daya type of diamond. Speaking of Daya, her brief interaction with our new character characterizes yellow further, as she refers to her as Yellow Nisama which is a way to refer to an older sibling or someone like an older sibling in a respectful or differential manner. Ni-sama usually means a brother, as opposed to ne-sama for an older sister, but again, this goes back to the idea that the gems are genderless. This kind of subtle detail that honorifics reveal about the state of things between two characters is one of the main reasons I prefer subtitles, as there isn't as much granularity in English. It's also worth pointing out that honorifics have been used very rarely in the series outside of them referring to Kongo as Sensei, and so this is especially significant. Fos will also refer to her this way later on, and so this seems to be more about Yellow than about Daya using this form of address. Anyway, the point is that Rutil's commentary about her being held in high regard is on the money and Daya even runs up to her hoping for affectionate head pats, suggesting that Yellow really is idolized by some of the gems. And despite her own misgivings, everything else we actually see from Yellow indicates someone who is highly competent. She finds Fos and comes up with a solution for her control problem on the fly. She has the presence of mind to pull Fos back before Congo delivers the coup de grace on the Lunarians at the end, she has the battlefield confidence that we already mentioned, and she seems to be able to do some of the work of mending broken gems. In fact, she's done it so regularly that she and Rutil can anticipate assisting one another. I'd raise the specter of the gems losing Rutil at some point, and how that seemed to indicate that they would be doomed to fall into disrepair over time, but it seems that Yellow can do in a pinch. I get the feeling not just anyone can manage this task, or else Rutil wouldn't have to be the one we always see pulling all-nighters to fix our troublesome protagonist. Overall, Yellow seems to occupy a place of esteem in the society and has the competence to justify it, 
But her own misgivings and her absence in the series so far suggests to me that she prefers a background role. I'm not sure she has quite the nuance of Rutile's character, but is otherwise kind of like a version of Rutile with less snark but more warmth. A big sister for the gems in general seems like it's pretty near the mark. The other new character is the Amethyst Twins, but they really are a single character and are even referred to in that way at times. I gotta say, they went pretty hard on the creepy twins trope. Amethyst has a Mohs hardness of 7 and is basically just purple quartz, the coloration coming from the presence of iron when it was formed. As our characters indicate, the quartz crystals can grow twinned, with left hand and right hand versions emerging from the same growth bed. This is apparently pretty common in natural quartz formation. I've often made reference to the way the series has utilized its CG, and Amethyst provides an example of how useful it is for the portrayal of twins. They are identical models except being swapped into left-hand and right-hand versions. Now, while one could draw and animate one character and flip a copy for a similar effect, having two different 3D models like this allows the lighting for the scene to match them correctly as though they were two different beings instead of mirror images. Just flipping an image would put the highlights and shadows on the wrong side. It also allows their movement to be in perfect sync at some points, but then perfectly identical yet staggered a bit at others so that they seem more like separate people and not clones. To have this level of fidelity between the two would be very labor-intensive in traditional animation, but is almost a footnote in CG production. And they do seem to be identical, to the degree that there is little distinct between them. The different numbers and being left or right-handed is about the extent of it, as their dialogue is often continuing each other's thoughts in alternating sentences or speaking in almost perfect tandem. They are not as well characterized as Yellow, I will say. Um, though initially resistant to teaming up with Fos, which apparently is a universal opinion, once taking her under their wing, they are constantly helpful and patient. They rouse her and ensure she makes the morning meeting. They try to instruct her in how to spot the Lunarian sunspots. They patiently try to give her a sense of what to expect from the job. And at the end, they are even offering to teach her to fight. They are even amused at pretending to play along with Fos lying in the grass and tricking them rather than being annoyed. They also seem to be really curious which is played for humor as they repeatedly make little exclamations of surprise at the snowbird, or the jellyfish, or the bug, or presumably whatever new thing catches their attention. Overall, I get an impression of a childlike innocence and good nature, and perhaps a bit of childlike simplicity as well. When they cut down the central Lunarian at the end, they want to draw Fos' attention to the idea that this might be one of those rare types rather than being alarmed about an unexpected threat. Their curiosity overrides their sense of self-preservation. In fact, a lot of the gems seem to have a dominant personality tendency, and curiosity appears to be amethysts. Yet, even when this turns against them and they are helpless in the grasp of the device, they don't call out to Fos for help, but call for her to run, to flee. Overall, their simple but wholesome characterization makes their fate at the end all the more traumatic. This may be the main point of their character when we look back at the story as a whole, as I do believe this episode is mostly about Fos getting what she thought she wants and finding it different than expected. 
The horror of her first real battle is all the more upsetting for the helpful innocence of the Amethyst twins being destroyed so callously. It's a different feel from the first fight, with Morganite's brash confidence in fighting instead of going for help, or the second fight with Bort, when you are actually disappointed that it's so one-sided since Daya wanted to help so much. Now let's talk just a little bit about Congo. We touch on the scene where Fos gets the lookout assignment already, and his own reaction to her pronouncement implies to me that perhaps the gems were taking their cue from the top when it comes to keeping their feelings to themselves. I've said before that my take on Congo is that he is a very emotional being, and the persona we see 99% of the time is actually a carefully maintained mask. It's really rare to see him show surprise, which is why Fosa's confession was so singular. However, he does show anger frequently enough that most of the gems can anticipate the small signs which foreshadow an outburst. Yet he doesn't just immediately become angry when something triggers that response. Instead, he keeps it suppressed up until the moment of release, and he seems to get past it almost in the same breath. It's like he needs to exercise that emotion out of him, but can control the moment it happens, and it only takes a moment to complete. This episode, though, has two instances of him being surprised and losing that control. Once is not related to anger at all, the surprise confession from Fos, and the other is when Fos mentions humans. We'll talk more about Fos's story later on, but Congo's eyes practically bug out of his skull when she says that word. He is tense in anticipation of what else she will say, so much so that he cracks the table that he rests his hand upon, and yet, when she cannot remember anything else, he appears to regain control. It's enough that Yellow remarks on him seeming a little off, and when Fos looks back, it appears he has finished the job of destroying the table and is looking out to see thoughtfully. I've said for some time that Congo is likely hiding things from them, and I think there can be no doubt now. It's clever to have Yellow and Rutile be there alongside Fos. Yellow is the oldest and Rutile is the scholar, and so having neither of them recognize the word tells us that knowledge of humans is probably completely absent among the gems. That is, it isn't just Fos and her youthful ignorance who is unprepared for Ventricosa's story. We can now assume that all the gems are in the same boat. Congo probably has not said anything about humanity because he believes it serves some good end, but that definitely informs our picture of him a little further. It's not clear if Congo's reaction is to the thought that humans might exist again, or that knowledge of them has survived, or worried that the knowledge of humans will reach the gems. Ventricosis presented that information as a story shared among her people, and it seems implied that the Lunarians retain knowledge of humanity as well. Perhaps that means some distant, if tenuous, link to original human civilization exists, but the origin story of the gems implies that they would have no such link. Not even knowing the word cements this further, but as I've pointed out, they seem to be mimicking a lot of human aspects without realizing it. Having themselves powdered and clothed to look more like humans than gems, living in houses and sleeping in beds, and apparently inheriting shyness about their nakedness despite having no sexuality. Congo clearly recognizes the word and must know of humans. Does that mean all these human-like behaviors in the gems come from him? Is he mimicking them on purpose or because it's what he knows? Or is it just something innate to the gems owing to their legacy? 
Which of those is the case will inform our picture of Kongo, but for now, we just don't have that information. He's definitely got a lot to run over in his mind now, though. Lastly, I just want to point out that he gets very angry at the gems sometimes, but we've never seen him actually get angry at the Lunarians. When he does whatever it was he did at the end there to destroy them or disperse them, he actually says something that makes it sound like he pities them or feels sympathy toward them. We've actually never seen the Lunarians attack Kungo himself, and we have the examples of them looking longingly through the window toward him and the worship-like ritual from his dream to go along with this observation. I don't know what the nature of their relationship to one another is, that's obviously meant to intrigue us, but I think it's something else that Kongo is keeping hidden from the gems. Very mysterious, the ways of Kongo. Very mysterious. Finally, we have Fos. We covered her a lot already in Goals, but due to where the episode ends, we aren't entirely sure how she is going to internalize this or what her immediate future may be. What I want to point out, though, is how the story is intentionally diverging from the beaten path. Fos ended last episode by having the disaster of her lost legs turned into some newfound superpower. And this episode began by giving us a demonstration of a well-respected gem who uses her speed as her key technique. In another anime, this would be the point where the main character's latent powers emerge to make them powerful and capable, surprising everyone else who never expected them to amount to anything. The underdog becomes the top dog, and the new hero serves as an example to us of perseverance, and the triumph of spirit, and the value of never losing sight of one's dreams, and so on and so on. Well, not so much. Indeed, it's just like Fos gaining the power to understand the Admirabilis. That's potentially a very useful ability, but it almost leads Fos to disaster, and does lead to the loss of her legs and memories. The fundamental flaws and inexperience of Fos underneath it all did not change just because she was physically different, and the same goes for the addition of the legs. That is to say that Fos, the character, her real self, is not so insubstantial or simple that new powers will compensate for 300 years of little direction or discipline. Kongo wants to find the gems a purpose, and they recognize the importance of having such a driving focus for immortal beings. Fos is the result of one who has lived mostly adrift, and that is not the kind of thing that gets sorted in a few days or can be overcome by a change in status or physicality. The writers have refused to give her such a neat and unsophisticated character journey. The Fos at the end there, stupefied by something so beyond her experience, is one who is too rich and complex to be shifted with such ease. She is still mostly that girl we first met laying idly in the grass, dreaming of being a cool fighter like the rest. There is another character introduced this episode who isn't really rounded out too much, but she actually helps us understand Fos. That character is Zircon, the Yellow Diamond's partner who unceremoniously lost her head in the opening minutes. Zircon is the second youngest, but she is characterized as excelling and overachieving, and perhaps even being too eager. But there was a time when she was the youngest gem on the island before Fos came ashore. Despite being in a similar circumstance at one point, her trajectory is nearly the opposite of Fos's. Being youngest has nothing to do with how well one can fit into the society or what kind of responsibility one can be entrusted to. Is this because of Fos being unsuitable for a job or purpose all along? 
Or is it just some quirk of Fosa's personality that makes her especially adept at, well, at not being adept at things? My read on it at this point is that it's mostly about that lack of purpose, which is why I think this might end up being a critical episode in her character journey. As I stated before, Fos is a different, better person when she is acting on behalf of Cinnabar. That goal gives her meaning in a way that I think has been in short supply during her life. There is even a minor worry that getting her goal of fighting fulfilled might sideline this uh, self-imposed quest to fix Cinnabar's situation. That with some other purpose to throw herself into, Fos might let it fall by the wayside. And yet, in the midst of all this excitement, on the night before her first big day, when she's literally sleeping with sword in hand, her thoughts still stray out to Cinnabar. Though she lies in bed in anticipation, she knows somewhere out there Cinnabar walks the night all alone, and she reframes her upcoming chance on the battlefield as something that might get her closer to helping her. All her nerves and hopes and excitement were still not enough to push Cinnabar's plight from her mind, and now even her long-awaited dream has been infused with her newfound purpose. I know I'm making it especially obvious in this video, but I adore Fos. Like I said in the introduction, the gems in, in general are a bit alien to us, uh, but watching Fos struggle with small things, or to fit in, or just to master her own impulses are all relatable to us in a way that the rest of this little kingdom are not. Most of them have shown some hidden side or misgiving that we can identify with, sure, but they are still universally capable. Only Fos is so overmatched by this world, and so she most easily earns our sympathy. While it would be cathartic to see Fos do a good job at something and earn more than scorn or patient understanding from the rest, seeing her become a capable fighter is not really that big of a payoff. Instead, it's the other goal that will galvanize us to cheer her on. Cinnabar is capable in a lot of ways that Fos is not. She's clever, emotionally sensitive, a devastatingly effective fighter, and yet there are things she can't do. Something as simply as idly laying in the sunny grass, and Fos gets to enjoy that with no effort on her part. Fos took her existence for granted, and Cinnabar's situation caused her to re-examine her life. Having the story be a succession of Fos's attempts to grow into the one person who might can do something for Cinnabar, and to do so because she finally recognizes someone in worse shape than herself, well, that's the kind of heroic journey that I'd like to get emotionally invested in. We don't even know enough about the Lunarians to understand their ongoing war, or what they want, or what other parts we are even missing. Casting down the alien threat with unexpected fighting prowess does not resonate in the same way as changing oneself because it will mean being able to help someone else. Now, Fos gave us her reason for wanting to badly join the fight, if she is disillusioned or banished from fighting, she is going to be a little down again, I believe. But if Fos really wanted to do this out of a love she feels towards Congo, then she still has a way to express this desire. If she sits down and thinks about it, she'll remember that Congo is also distressed about the situation with Cinnabar, and yet has not been able to come up with a solution thus far. Congo has lots of gems that can fight the Lunarians, but he doesn't seem to have anyone who can solve a crisis so personal as the one facing Cinnabar. I don't know if Fos will see it this way or not, as she is introspective but also easily distracted. She had doubts about being able to do anything, since even Congo and Rutil couldn't think of a solution. 
But even inside this episode, we see Fos go from being hilariously unable to control her own legs to being able to manage them with great precision. She could hardly lift the sword at first, and while she doesn't master it or anything, she continues to try to hold it over her head even when getting ready to go to sleep. You can even see a slight tremor in the effort it takes for her to hold it above her that way. Maybe it's because she's young, or maybe there is something to the Moe's scale and how changeable a gem can be, but I feel like Fos is a pretty fast learner so long as she is motivated. I come away from this episode expecting a lot from her, but none of it having to do with how well she fights. In world building, we will run through this roughly in the order that they show up. The partnership between Yellow Diamond and Zircon is introduced, along with the fact that before Fos, they were the oldest and youngest of the gems. While we don't learn Zircon's age, Yellow is 3,597 years old. Doing some quick math based on what Euclid told us about the history of their struggle against the Lunarians, that means that Yellow lived a good 1,424 years without the constant threat of the moon's residents trying to kidnap them nearly five times as long as Fos has been alive at all. Presumably, all of her personality and understanding of the world was well established before the first incursion. Despite that, when she is discussing the Lunarians with Rutile, she admits that she can't remember why they're fighting anymore. It actually reminds me of the way Fos will later stop and struggle to recall the missing memories of being in the sea. Is there something missing in Yellow's memory also? especially about how all of this was kicked off or how it led to here. It seems like Euclase might have also been alive at the outset, um, but our exact details are a little scarce. I only bring it up because, well, why did they bring it up? Is this just an expression of her disillusionment or how disaffected she is about the constant struggle? Or is there something else there? Potentially related to that, she shares a list of her former partners that are now captured and taken to the moon. I don't know if they existed before the Lunarians began their raids or not, though presumably one was her original partner. However, there is something in common between them. Ruby, Sapphire, Green Diamond, and Pink Topaz are the names she gives. Well, the Mohs scale hardness of that group is 9, 9, 10, and 8, respectively. Which means that outside of Yellow, Daya, and Bort, these would have been the hardest members that we know of. Does that mean that the Lunarians intentionally targeted the harder gems first? Or is it an artifact of them putting other hard gems with Yellow as partner, and her speedy tactics really are responsible for their capture? Because if it's the former, that the harder gems were targeted on purpose, then it suggests a forward-looking strategy on the part of the Lunarians. The jaws of the device at the end that crushes Amethyst have blue gem-like teeth. Does that mean they were fashioned from Sapphire, who we now know was captured in the past, and who is much harder than Amethyst, or indeed of any of the gems aside from the diamonds? It could be coincidence, of course, and simply a side effect of having the hardest gems be at the forefront of the fights, like with Daya and Bort. That would probably make them more likely to be captured. Uh, Yellow has done reconstruction many times before, as we covered. During her conversation with Rutile, they comment about how the rain provides a break from the Lunarians, as well as the need to prepare for hibernating soon. Later on, Amethyst will comment after seeing the snowbird that it is not long until winter. So, winter is coming. Referencing it multiple times like this suggests it will be happening soon and will be significant in some way. More on that in speculation. 
there is another small thing from that first fight. We hear Yellow notice and comment on Kongo and his approach. She says, Sensei, always so fast. And while it does look like he is effortlessly gliding toward them, we can see Euclase and Jade beside him running for all they're worth just to keep up. During the fight at the end, he shows up again with Yellow beside him, and she is completely worn out from the effort of matching pace. I don't know what that means exactly, but it suggests something about his physical capability is surprising even to the gems. We get further clues about their physical nature as well. The scene with Fos struggling to lift the weapon suggests rather deliberately that the gems are not equal in strength, and yet their silhouettes are almost identical aside from their hair. That is, the stronger gems are not bigger than weaker gems, unlike in humans where larger musculature implies greater strength. Outside of Fos, too, it's implied that the gems are quite strong. The ease with which Yellow grabs and holds Fos during the scene when Fos can't control her speed implies Yellow is many times stronger than her size would imply. Indeed, if this holds across most of the gems, then it explains why they can leap such great distances and heights, or move with such great speed. They're certainly more powerful than a similarly sized human would be, which seems especially noteworthy when remembering how Congo seems to further exceed their capabilities. The explanation for why Fos has suddenly gained this super speed is that the inclusions inside her have changed their power output to match the strength of the legs. That further suggests that the relative power between the gems might also be due to their hardness. The inclusions within each of them may tailor their output to the container they find themselves in. If true, then the Mohs scale may represent a power scale in a more complete way than just which gem will scratch or shatter another. That scene with the weapon also sort of introduces Obsidian. Ostensibly, she is in charge of weapons, and we see her working on several. Now, Obsidian itself was a popular choice for cutting weapons before metalworking arose because it can be fractured into pieces with very sharp edges. It's quite brittle and breaks easily, but those exposed ends can be sharper than anything we can make with steel even today. Now, that might suggest that their swords are made from obsidian as well. I wondered before what they might be composed of, and this would appear to be the answer. Except, isn't obsidian herself probably made of obsidian? And if so, are the weapons part of her or come from her? This raises the further question of what we should make of any other gemstones in the world and their relationship to our sapient gems. As it is, this probably implies the weapons are obsidian, but it's not confirmed and it raises some confusing issues on its own. We'll just keep this in mind in case it is clarified later on. Anyway, the second part of that scene with the weapon reveals an important development. The loss of her legs has left Fos with almost no memory of the conversation she had with Ventricosis about the story of soul, flesh, and bone, as well as the humans from which they are supposed to have descended. We said last time that she almost certainly will have forgotten more than just Jade's name, and this is at least part of the answer to what is lost to her. The net effect is that the audience now knows the deal with the three races and a link to humanity, and possibly even the Lunarian's goal, but because Faust doesn't remember, none of the other gems will learn it. At least not yet. As we touched on already, none of them know what the word humans means, but Congo absolutely does. 
Perhaps he would also recognize the story that Ventricosa shared, or know a different version, but we get no opportunity to learn as much this time. One thing I do find odd about that scene, though, is that Fos had to have remembered some of what happened. She understands enough after losing her legs to know who Ventricosis is, and the situation she was in that led to the betrayal, and she witnessed Oculiatus waking up and wrecking the Lunarians. She couldn't have had the conversation she did if she'd forgotten all of that. And further, she would remember everything that took place between being hauled up in the net and being deposited on the shore for Cinnabar to find. And yet, she doesn't relay any of it. I don't quite know what to make of that. Maybe Fos was so overwhelmed by realizing she has a gap in her memory that it throws her off? Or does she really need the context of actually seeing the two Admirabilis to make those connections around whatever intervening memories were lost? Unfortunately, we don't know exactly how their memories work. I can't help but feel like the story would progress differently if she was at least able to tell Congo the things that she should be able to remember. But for now, it appears that no one aside from Fos and the Admirabilis is going to know what actually happened out there. Next up is theme. Let's begin with the contrast of individual versus society, that tension between the good of the one against the good of the many. It's been a frequent refrain in the series that having a job, having a purpose, is important for the gems at least partially because of their immortality. Kongo has this as a goal, and for good reason, and figuring out how to accommodate Fos and her proclivities has basically driven the part of the story that we've seen so far. There's been no success in sight, but the importance of it remains. In a way, this desire but failure to find a solution for Fos is mirrored in Fos's own disappointing quest to find a purpose for Cinnabar. It's come up before, but each of them mirror each other in an especially obvious way when we think of terms of this thematic pattern. The potential damage Cinnabar can cause to society has slowly led them all to accept her being banished to the night and not even living with her sisters, which has had a high cost for her personally. We haven't gotten to that point with Fos yet, but she surely has gotten them considering it. This episode, she gets her long-awaited chance to join the fight. The key thing about the decision to let her participate is that they don't actually need her. The Amethyst twins have handled their own task without issue, and Fos is only a potential distraction or liability. Outside of finding a purpose for one of its members, there's no benefit to society in having her join the lookout, but there is the potential for a drawback. Now, I can't tell if we're meant to infer that things went awry with that final fight only because Fos was there. Maybe they only fought instead of going for help because of Fos's presence. Or maybe they only lost because of being distracted by Fos. Or maybe they were going to be caught off guard no matter what, and the only fault it was with Fos standing there amazed. But if Fos joining the lookout was the proximate cause for Amethyst's fate, then now the good of the individual Fos is becoming a detriment to the good of the society she lives in. We avoided any true disaster from her ill-advised foray into the sea, but the potential was there for a different tragedy entirely. Since she got the legs that led to her being partnered with Amethyst because of that misadventure, it does indirectly contribute to how this episode ended. We'll have to see next time how much fault is laid at the feet of Fos herself, but I can't imagine Kongo will repeatedly endanger other gems for the sake of Fos if he feels he has another option. 
as Cinnabar's example proves, they are not unwilling as a society to have one person live in a terrible way if it's for the good of them all. Fos is the unwitting champion of the individual in this tension, but her failures are doing the cause no favors. However, our next theme demonstrates that her struggles are not so singular. We've had a theme of pairs in opposition, and would it appear at first that Yellow Diamond and Fos are set up to be an example, what with being the oldest and the youngest, having all of the respect versus none of the respect. Both are speedsters, but Fos is untested and unable to control it, while Yellow is long practiced. Like I said earlier, they created the expectation that Fos could suddenly excel by giving us an example of someone successfully fighting with speed, only for the whole experience to overwhelm her. But at the end, it looks like Fos is going to lose her partners, which is exactly the internal crisis that Yellow has when others look at her with reverence. They are effectively opposite in a lot of ways that we compare because of their shared physical attribute, but despite their differences, both have to face the same kind of self-doubt. Or at least, I'm assuming Fos will feel inadequate because of this, just as she did after her adventure in the sea. I doubt anyone in this society is going to look at the two of them and see much similarity. The constant screw-up versus the revered older sister figure? The one who's never had a real job and is a mere babe? Versus one 12 times her age who has survived innumerable Lunarian incursions? Surely their mindsets couldn't be further apart. And yet both have the same failing and may turn out to be haunted in a similar way. While I'm not yet sure what has become of Amethyst, whether one is lost or both or neither, if Fos has lost someone she was responsible for, then Yellow is positioned to be very understanding in a way others may not be. There is some solidarity in tragedy, and so despite the superficial impression that Yellow and Fos are opposites, the reality is that they may relate to one another very well indeed. The next theme, though, is something Fos will have to deal with alone, and that is our theme of metamorphosis. We already talked about it last time with her receiving the new legs, and how there was even the little flyby of the odd insect that recalled all of the previous imagery of butterflies. This episode, we get to see what this change means for Fos. It is not purely the boon it may have first seemed. The gems do not seem to deal with change very well, but Fos, as youngest, seems to be better equipped for it, which we've spoken about already. She may be best suited to adapt to such a dramatic change, and the mismatch between her top and bottom make her a new kind of creature. But I suspect the example of Fos does not make anyone in the society eager for such a dramatic change themselves. Fos gave up some key memories in the exchange, and struggles initially to control her new appendages. Her own inexperience may have caused her to freeze at the end, but joining the fight may not have fared any better, as the example of setting her on the rock causing fracture suggests that she would still fall apart in a real battle. However, one of the things that Fos forgot due to the loss of her legs was the story of soul, flesh, and bone, and how the Lunarians may be attempting to resurrect humanity by combining the three races. That's just conjecture from Ventricosis right now, but don't we have a bit of a nascent example in Fos? She was absorbed by the snail form and seemed to gain an understanding of their speech from the process, and now she is partially fused with one of their shells. Isn't she already a combination of bones and flesh from the story? 
Does this mean that some kind of bond between her and Lunarians will create some further new creature? A further metamorphosis? Does this rebirth humanity or turn Fos into something like a human herself? Even without going to that extreme, has Fos inherited more than just speech from her bond to the Admirabilis? Ventricosis talks about them inheriting a cycle of death and rebirth from humanity, and we noted that they seemed much more changeable and sexual than the gems. They are also mortal and short-lived. Has Fos inherited any of that? Quite apart from how interesting Fos is as a character, some future destiny being shaped by her ongoing metamorphosis may explain why she is the story's central figure. She is a lodestone to change and upheaval, at the very least, which is something quite alien in gem society. Now, for our last full theme, I had spoken before of a theme I didn't know quite how to articulate. I wrote it as mortality, change versus permanence, environmental, allegory? Not very helpful, I realize, but I've been getting the sense that these subjects are meant to be interconnected in the story, and I just hadn't seen enough of it to understand exactly what or how. Ventricosis' reasoning when she decides to take Fos home again is that if they don't change their ways, then they're no different than the Lunarians. We and the Gems have witnessed the Lunarians changing up their tactics at a pretty aggressive clip. And yet, while Euclase and Rutile notes that they are disconnected from the world due to being immortal, and Congo even assumes that their very long lives mean that things like Cinnabar's Crisis are not emergencies, we have this example of Fos changing in personality and physicality while also striving to change the fate of another. Lunarians and Admirabilis appear to be embracing change, or at least are open to it, while the gems naturally resist or even overlook it. This makes Fos the focal point of the conflict between the constant of change and the inertia of what already exists. She's at the center point of change versus permanence. Just being free from mortality makes the gems very alien to the world they inhabit. Not being part of the death and rebirth cycle probably distorts their sense of the inevitable and of the concept of transience. Mortal creatures are born or hatched or sprouted as tiny immature things that grow into adulthood and then decline toward death. The inescapable grasp of time and the transformation it brings is self-evident to such beings. They can see it in themselves, and thus easily see it in the world they inhabit. Between these observations, then, I suspect that Fos's journey reflects this tension, and it is implied that Fos will change further still in the story to come. Now, for the other part of this thematic chimera, it needs a disclaimer first. I'm hesitant in general to do interpretation with a capital I, as I think of it, extrapolating out the thematic arguments from a story and then trying to apply it to our reality. It's why I usually skip it unless a reference is particularly overt. It's fine for how an individual may analyze a work, right? Applying what resonates for them in a story to their own circumstance or worldview. But standing up here and promoting the way I internalize it as anything but how I personally, in this exact moment with my exact perspective, read it, is a bit misleading. At least it says as much or more about what I think of the world outside the story as it does what I think of the story itself. I'm perfectly fine going the other direction, applying the things we understand about psychology or history or technique to the story itself, but going in reverse is dangerous territory. 
I'm always amazed at how eager analysts of all walks are to proclaim that a story is clearly about this real-world subject, or is an attack on this group, or is obviously propaganda for this or that cause. I often wonder if they realize that they are saying more about themselves than about the story, or if they realize very well, and that's the point. I believe emphatically that we read ourselves into art, and though it does or doesn't resonate, can reveal details of our inner selves and how we may differ from others. It's part of why I routinely like to remind everyone that there are no correct interpretations, no objective analyses. There's only opinions and justifying those opinions. Yet still, to be someone who thinks highly enough of his own analysis that he'd make a whole hour plus video on it, I think there is a responsibility to be especially cautious with the opinions presented, to be cognizant of the impact you may have on how someone else experiences the story. So that's my huge disclaimer before going further, and you are really quite free to discard the other half of this reading of mine. Now then, with Congo's reaction to the mention of humans, I think it is increasingly difficult to ignore the idea that the story may be environmental allegory, at least in part. I mentioned way back after we had the story of the six shooting stars apparently crashing to Earth, becoming six moons, and thus changing the fate of life, that these moons and stars were probably not literal celestial objects, but might represent instead the six mass extinction events on Earth. Crucially, the sixth mass extinction event, the Holocene extinction, is the one that is ongoing right now. It is generally held to be anthropogenic. That is, while seismic events or planetary impacts have caused the previous mass extinction events, this one is being caused by the activity of humans. Thus, the reason the story world exists the way it does now is because humanity in the past altered the Earth and the life on it to bring it to this point. This includes the Lunarian, Gem, and Admirabilis descent, and Ventricosis further suggested that each of these three races may have inherited some aspect of humanity. The Admirabilis inherited their death and rebirth and the passing on of knowledge. The Lunarians, though, may have inherited a warlike and greedy nature from these same humans. There is an assignment of negative qualities of humanity to the Lunarians, potentially as what drives them to do what they do. Congo's reaction to Fos mentioning humanity was one of alarm. He was anxious to hear what else she could recall, and seemingly frustrated when no more was forthcoming. He guards the gems from Lunarian incursions, and is on guard when humans are brought up, and these behaviors are probably linked. If Congo knows that humans are responsible for the world and the way it is, then it may be that he sees humanity's past actions reflected in the current actions of the Lunarians. The Lunarians have hunted down and taken control of all the Admirabilis and are trying to do the same to the gems. In the context of environmental metaphor, then, each of these two victim races may represent the past wealth of the natural world. The Admirabilis are the plants and animals of old Earth, the biosphere, while the gems are the mineral wealth and other non-living resources. The humans of the past exploited and consumed the world around them as surely as the current Lunarians are slowly taking control of the other two races. The world will be quite empty if they succeed, as they are consuming the others at a faster rate than they can replenish themselves. 
it is telling that they do not even live on Earth itself. Whether the Lunarians really are trying to resurrect humans or not, one can see how Congo may feel the shadow of humanity in their current path, assuming he knows this past. If this holds water at all, I'll be interested to see whether the religious iconography and the Lunarian's status as being the soul will have any bearing on their behavior. That could be another type of commentary altogether, but we'll just have to wait and see. Now, to take all that and apply it to this change versus permanence tension, if we go with this reading of environmental collapse caused by past humans now being echoed in the strife between the three races, then the resistance to or embracing of change may be commentary on the mindsets of humans in the past, which actually means the real-world humans in the present, the audience for the series itself, us. Are we acknowledging change and reacting to it, as Ventricosis has decided? Or are we staying the course as the majority of the gems, assuming that things will continue as they always have? Euclase notes that they are disconnected from the natural world, and Rutile adds that they are not alarmed when the Lunarians make dramatic changes. This could be applied to many in human civilization today, where industry and advancement insulate us from nature and its fluctuations, while our advances in technology and the stability of our lives suggest that there is no risk of dramatic changes to the course of things. Even with what should be troubling news about climate change, ocean acidification, declining insect population, and so on, many continue as they always have, unable or unwilling to feel the danger as real or pressing. They would be like the gems, whose immortality effectively disconnects them from the world outside their own existence. Even acknowledging the change like Rutile does does not lead to any deviation in their actions. They just continue, assuming that things will work out somehow. It's not all the gems, though, and if this convoluted theme has any merit, then having Fos as a centerpiece makes perfect sense. She's the gem who is trying to change her fate and the fate of those around her, and she is succeeding in physically changing as well. Not that the latter part was her goal, but it's a concrete proof of the capacity for change. It gives an outer and visible echo of the invisible evolution inside her. Confronting the turmoil and destruction that both the Lunarians and modern humans inflict on the world cannot be met with the strategies and behaviors that led to this point. They require a change in course, and Fos is at the very center of this ideological clash as surely as she is at the center of the story. If any part of this reading is right, then, I expect the changes to be even more dramatic and the consequences even more dire for our gems as we go further. That would echo the forecast for humans and their environment in our own world. Anyway, going forward we will consider examples of change versus permanence as they show up, as there will be a lot more examples, I think. Then we will also revisit this potential environmental allegory if it seems to get further colored in. Just remember that the two are probably related to one another. Lastly, there are a collection of themes that I think will come up next time, but including them here will require me to speculate even more than I already have. I think the what we take for granted theme is pretty closely related to the environmental allegory, but I think the impending onset of winter might give us another example. Likewise, we might have a return to this question of one's innate value versus one's purpose, but that really depends on how Fos internalizes this final battle. So let's table them for now and see what next episode at least has in store. It will be something we watch for, 
Which leads us to our next section, what to watch for. In the newer versions of my format for this show, I have gotten rid of this section, combining it with speculation and then tracking progress on both fronts. We will keep this section for the rest of this series look, however, to try to keep things mostly consistent. It will probably be a little abbreviated. First off, we will watch next time to see how Fos and the rest react to this ill-fated encounter with the Amethyst Twins. One half of this will be the external reaction, how the others feel. Rutile's noted observations of how Fos is handling her new task are likely to show up at some point, and it might be in a discussion about whether Fos can continue, or what Fos is suitable for at all. Bort is obviously displeased at the end of the episode, but is it with the outcome or the fact that Fos set there paralyzed in bewilderment? And our ever-stoic Congo gives no hint of his feelings at needing to intervene after reluctantly allowing Fos's involvement. But as we discussed in Goals, he has some warring priorities here if it is to be believed that Fos can't be trusted with the safety of others. The other half is seeing how Fos internalizes the entire scouting experience. Like we discussed, it's more than just the trauma of her first encounter. So much about this job she idolized for so long has turned out to be different than her expectations. The other gems take their existence in stride, but Fos is not shy about voicing displeasure. However, she also takes it seriously when she has pledged herself to something willingly, even if it causes her internal strife. Even though she realized she bit off more than she can chew by promising Cinnabar that she'll find her a job that only she can do, she has continued to try to see it through. That prompted her to take the encyclopedia task more seriously, to ask Rutile and Congo and others about Cinnabar, to venture into the ocean at considerable risk to herself. She even tries to entertain the possibility that her new scouting job can somehow help her in this task. She wanted to be involved in the fight, and everyone knows it. Would she abandon it without protest, even if it's not what she hoped for? If she has a choice in the matter, her decision will tell us a lot about her, so it's something we are definitely watching for. We will watch for the Lunarians to continue trying new things. They've gotten quite close to success in the departures that we've seen so far, collecting the pieces of Morga and Gaucher after surprising them with the Heliodor arrowheads, actually having Fos in their grasp after the Snail Gambit, and now some potential success with the Amethyst Twins. This should encourage them to continue changing things up, because one time or another it's going to work. Relatedly, we'll watch to see the actual fate of the Amethyst Twins, but I will revisit that in speculation. We'll also watch for the onset of winter and how that changes the gym's daily routine. We've gotten quite used to the normal course of things for our little island, with Fosa's antics the only real departure. Seeing what a wider shift in behavior looks like will help fill in our understanding of this world. Um, more on that in a second as well. Um, we will watch Congo very closely. The word for humans surviving and even encountering one of his gems is very upsetting to him. We expect to eventually learn more and more about the history of this world, but in the short term we should see if Congo's behavior changes, either in general or specifically toward Fos. Finally, we need to continue to watch for what the Lunarians actually want. Congo had two reactions this time that are cause for curiosity. One, of course, is the panic at knowledge of humans potentially having reached the gems. We thus know that the gems are kept in ignorance. However, the soul, flesh, bones tale seemed to be well known among the Admirabilis, 
and it appears the Lunarians are familiar with the history as well. Congo's panic may be related to how the Lunarians understand humanity. The second reaction that I think is worth noting is Congo's expression of pity before he destroys Lunarians right at the end, which I mentioned in characterization. Isn't the way these presumably opposed beings treat each other rather curious? Does what the Lunarians want have to do as much with Congo as with anything else? Is it him they actually want to be united to? Or reunited to? With the Admirabilis exiting the stage, it may be a minute before we have any other insight to the Lunarian thought process, but we are certainly going to watch for it. Finally, we have our speculation section. Let's pick up right where the episode ended, with the Amethyst twins in the Lunarian's grasp and Phos potentially in trouble. What do I suppose is the fate of these three? To start with Amethyst, I want to point out that we just had a cliffhanger that wasn't the peril it indicated. The show is not above giving us a hint of disaster that turns out to be nothing of the sort. However, the second and fourth episode's cliffhangers actually were dire situations that required most of the following episode to resolve. So in this case, I'm not sure if we lost these new characters or not. It's the closest we've come outside of Fosa's capture, and Bort seems angry enough to imply that something was lost. But they also specifically show Daya and Zircon picking up pieces of Amethyst from the cliff, so I can't imagine stopping to show that if it didn't mean that they got them back. It may be that some of her was lost, and the two who are one will now be reassembled into just one, which has some unsettling implications. It doesn't seem possible that Bort could have knocked all of the gem fragments onto the cliff for recovery, but would Congo disperse or destroy or whatever he's doing to Lunarians if some of the gem fragments were still on the Sunspot platform? I pointed out that the twins really function as a single character, so if they are only partially recovered, there is a tangible loss to the gems, but not a complete removal of a character who was just introduced to the audience. I'm not sure on the future of this character right now, but I can see them at least serving the purpose of making Fos's first real fight especially disastrous. That could be their purpose in the story, and I wouldn't be surprised. So for the third person then, does Fos keep her job or not? I said in goals, the key question is whether this is something Fos still wants to do. She's unrelenting and stubborn after what she wants. Regardless of what the others think, her desire is likely to be the determining factor, but I think the shine is off. I think that really was the point of this episode. Like I said in Goals, unless she can recontextualize fighting as something she does for everyone else rather than for herself, then this will be the end of her time in the fight, at least as we normally understand it. Of course, all of that guesswork depends on whether she even has a choice. As we covered in Goals, Congo is stuck between warring desires if Fos cannot be trusted even as a lookout. I also think repeatedly showing Rutile observing the overwhelmed Fos sets her up to be a witness and support for the idea that Fos is overmatched in this role. It seems unlikely to me that they can just carry on with the current arrangement. Either they need to put serious effort into making Fos suitable for this kind of job, or there should be a change in the job itself. Next then, winter is coming. It is mentioned that they need to prepare to hibernate soon when Yellow and Rutile are speaking, and later the Amethyst twins will remark that it is not long until winter comes now after they see a snowbird fly by. 
I'm assuming that hibernate means the gems reduce their activity level, or maybe hibernate in truth. Since we know they are powered by sunlight and winter features shorter days, perhaps they will not have the energy to operate like normal. If this means they can't patrol and fight like normal, then it would initially sound like cause for concern. However, we also have the frequent suggestion that the Lunarians are also limited to daytime operations. They don't come at night, Euclase gives her estimate of their activity based only on the count of sunny days, and Rutile and Yellow will both refer to the rain as keeping the Lunarians away. So it should follow that the Lunarians will have reduced operations in the winter as well. And that seems all but obvious, considering they would have captured all the gems by now if they could march in unopposed as soon as the seasons turn. Of course, the Lunarians have been overturning all their predictable behavior lately, so I imagine assuming this winter will go the same as any other is probably premature. That seems especially ominous, standing at the midpoint of the season like this. I had said last time that I expected leaving the low-stakes affair of the encyclopedia task may mean leaving the low-stakes part of the series to this point. Having a winter incursion be a major crisis as we pass the midway point makes a lot of structural sense and is consistent with the other patterns I've mentioned thus far. So I don't know exactly how it would be different, but I am speculating that this approaching winter will not proceed in the same way as past winters. The Lunarians are going to change up something they are doing, and the gems will be caught off guard once again. Except, this time I don't think it will be a minor hiccup. There are a lot of things that could happen, and a lot of individual gems we could lose which would cause a shakeup, and I confess that I don't have a good reason to suspect one event or victim over another. I do think all that talk about Phos and Metamorphosis as an ongoing theme makes her a good candidate to be swept up in whatever does happen. Considering the frequent cliffhangers lately, it may be that whatever crisis I am foretelling will only crystallize right at the end of next episode, but I feel pretty sure that this is the time for a bigger shakeup. Alright, there is more I could guess at with this long time to think about it, but this video is long enough already, especially for the short look format. Um, if I get a chance next time, I'll elaborate on some of the things I have thought of in this long time to reflect. I'll see you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.